It's Thursday, August 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a deep dive into the history of the IPA. What exactly is an IPA, anyways? How did it get its name? And why did it become so ubiquitous over the last decade? Plus, a very brief look at South Korea's first ever moon mission launching this evening. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Apparently, according to targeted advertising I got while reading the news this morning, today is National IPA Day. National IPA Day falls on the first Thursday in August and was founded in 2011 by Ashley Rouston, author of The Beer Wench's Guide to Beer, in order to unite brewers, breweries, and fans of IPAs. Now, IPAs these days come with a boatload of stereotypes, but not a ton of facts. Even as someone who genuinely enjoys IPAs and drinks them most days of the week, I admit that prior to today, I was a bit iffy on what exactly it meant, and certainly what the history of the drink was. I think most people just fall into the camp of loving IPAs or hating IPAs, and that's about good enough for them. And there's a decent explanation for this. IPAs, or India Pale Ales, are typically pretty bitter and hoppy, and that's a flavor profile some people will enjoy and others won't. Anecdotally, I know myself and several of my friends have gone through phases of being super into IPAs and then not enjoying them at all, and I always chalked that up to being kind of an acquired taste you could lose your acquiredness for if you went a while without drinking it, but the real answer might have more to do with the evolution and availability of IPAs in recent years. Beer and Brewing explains that the earlier resurgence of IPAs was a lot of West Coast IPAs, which Bonapetit describes as, quote, "...bitterness balanced with an exceptionally clean, crisp body, higher carbonation, and big tropical fruit notes." End quote. But these days, a lot of the popular ones on the market are New England IPAs, described by Bonapetit as, quote, "...unfiltered and with extremely low bitterness from using blends of hops that lend intense, fruity flavor. This is the IPA for the I-don't-like-IPAs person in your life, which might be why they're so popular right now." End quote. So if you tried an IPA several years ago and didn't like it, Beer and Brewing says maybe give it another shot because that might have been one of the more intense West Coast varieties, and these days you might find something a bit more palatable. New England IPAs are sometimes called hazy IPAs, and that moniker is a huge fad that has swept breweries large and small over the past couple of years. According to MarketWatch, consumers drank twice as many hazy IPAs in 2020 as they did in 2019. When even Sam Adams starts making a hazy IPA, you know it's hit the more mainstream market beyond just IPA snobs. And apart from its low bitterness and typically lower alcohol content, Jeff O'Neill, the founder of Industrial Arts Brewing Co., says that the opaque, cloudier quality of an IPA also makes it more photogenic, so they might be experiencing a bit of an Instagram bump. Though beer certification program judge and beer podcaster Lisa Grimm told Salon this spring that she thinks the ubiquity of hazy IPAs could actually be contributing to some of the more recent backlash against and burnout from IPAs. With so many companies making hazy IPAs, it can be tough to find anything else. And if you straight up don't like IPAs, it gets frustrating trying to find a good lager, stout, saison, or anything else. 
Now, backlash aside, IPAs are still going strong. At the end of 2020, they had a 40% market share of craft beer, and sales in multi-outlet retail stores surged 20% year-over-year. But the real big heyday was the mid-2010s. That's when IPAs exploded into every beer aisle and bar tap in America. And that's when a lot of people went to Google to figure out exactly what the heck an IPA was anyways. And hence, that is exactly when most of the sources I found on the history of this drink were written. Now, if you've looked into it at all, you've probably found the most oft-repeated generalized history. In the 1700s, the British invented the IPA to preserve beer when it traveled with them from England to India, its extra hops and high alcohol content keeping it from going stale on the long journey. Maybe you've even heard that the man who came up with that brilliant solution was named George Hodgson of Old Bow Brewery in London. But none of that is exactly true. Beers of many varieties, like the darker, sweeter porters popular in England at the time, had been being shipped around the world without huge issues since at least the start of the 1700s. As Martin Cornell put it in Beer Connoisseur back in 2010, there was no need to invent a new style of beer to survive the trip to India. And, in fact, porter remained popular in India throughout the 1800s. Not only did extra hoppy pale ales not need to be invented for that purpose, they already had been invented prior to George Hodgson's version. Aaron Goldfarb explained in Wine Enthusiast that the practice of coke firing in the mid-1600s led to the creation of pale ales in the early 1700s. Quote, Coke firing made coal usable as malting fuel, which offered more control over the process during the mid-1600s. It burned more cleanly and allowed for a lighter roast compared to wood or peat, which would have darkened the malt and imparted a smoky taste. By the turn of the 18th century, the technique allowed for the creation of pale ales in England. These beers were shipped to India as early as 1717. In 1784, these pale ales were advertised in the Calcutta Gazette. That's pretty solid proof that the English made successful beer shipments to India long before they loaded the brews with tons of hops. End quote. Basically, all beers going to India were being fortified with extra hops to preserve them, according to Joshua Bernstein in Punch. And Goldfarb points out that well into the mid-1800s, the British East India Company was still sending more porter to India than pale ale, though both were being sent in enormous quantities. Pale ales were there, and they were favored for the journey and the warmer climate because of their hops, but they weren't invented because of the British colonization of India. And George Hodgson was the best-known and perhaps most successful exporter of pale ales at the time. His brewery was well-positioned near the East India Company's dock, and he made a handful of clever business and production decisions that gave him an edge over competitors, of which there were many. And by the time his sons took over the brewery, according to William Bostock's The Brewer's Tale, A History of the World According to Beer, they became absolutely ruthless at flooding the market and driving down prices to scare off competitors. Given Hodgson's Old Bow Brewery's huge presence at the time, it's not completely surprising that he was erroneously credited with an invention that had been brewing for decades before he entered the game. And neither he nor his sons ever claimed that they did invent the pale ale. Credit wasn't given to him until 1869, when writer William Molyneux wrote, quote, The origin of India ale is by common consent accredited to a London brewer named Hodgson. The brewery where pale ale was first brewed, according to popular opinion, was the Old Bow Brewery. End quote. India ale. That's another thing. It would be a while before it was referred to as India pale ale. 
Quoting Cornell in Beer Connoisseur, In 1839, Hodgson's was described as Hodgson's Ale, the universal and favorite beverage of our vast Indian territories. However, this beer was called Pale Ale for India, Pale ale prepared for the East and West India climate, and similar circumlocutions, not the familiar name we know today. The first use of the phrase that eventually became shortened to IPA does not seem to occur until an advertisement in the Liverpool Mercury newspaper on January 30th, 1835, for Hodgson's East India Pale Ale. Even after this, many newspaper advertisements continued to talk about pale ale as prepared for India, rather than India Pale Ale, for another decade or so. End quote. Despite some international trade relation complications in the 19th century, the IPA style stayed relatively popular until the early 20th century, when, according to Punch, the Czech-style Pilsner won over public affection. Shortly before then, IPAs did make the leap over to America. The first American-brewed IPA was in Newark, New Jersey in 1878, and that Ballantine IPA actually stayed in production until 1996. But for most of that time, Americans weren't too keen on IPAs, nor was anyone else. Quoting Punch, the modern American boom of the style can really be traced back to two beers, beginning in 1975 with San Francisco's Anchor Brewing Liberty Ale, which was brewed with a new hop called Cascade. Floral and full of grapefruit bitterness, Liberty was freedom from light lager tyranny, an early IPA even if it lacked the descriptor. Eight years later, Burt Grant's Yakima Brewery and Malting Company was the first beer to pair the style with its proper moniker. The IPA gradually became a weapon in craft brewers' battle against conglomerates. The mid-90s welcomed Lagunitas IPA and Stone IPA, symphonies of citrus and pine that solidified the West Coast as a stylistic trailblazer. End quote. East Coast and Midwest breweries were entering the game throughout the 90s as well. It wouldn't be until the mid-aughts, however, that breweries started cranking the bitterness and alcohol content way up. This was the era when the stronger, the better, at least for the then-small niche of beer lovers who wore their ability to withstand a super-strong IPA as a badge of honor. As Grimm told Salon, quote, There was a real emphasis on aggressive bitterness, and IPAs like Stone's Arrogant Bastard made a big deal about how extreme they were, and how only really hardcore people could handle it. End quote. And continuing from Salon, quote, Inherent to that messaging was an us-versus-them mentality. You were either in the club of people who could handle it, or you weren't. That didn't dissuade customers from trying IPAs, though. This was also around the time that the concept of craft beer was making its way into the American mainstream. In January 2006, leaders of the newly formed Brewers Association were putting their heads together to hammer out an agreed-upon definition for craft beer. And a few months later, the first American Craft Beer Week was held. In many ways, the IPA became synonymous with the craft beer revolution. End quote. But after the bubble on extreme IPAs essentially burst, many breweries slingshotted back to full-flavored, lower-alcohol IPAs, like the Sessions and Hazies topping the market right now. That's part of the fascination with IPAs, both from consumers and brewers, is there is so much you can do with them. Different hops from different places around the world can elicit so many different kinds of flavors. There's a lot of innovation happening. A lot of creative brewers are seeing how much they can push the boundaries within the one style. 
And it's cool to see that variety, but in response to IPA backlash, some brewers who spoke to Salon are urging their peers to apply that sense of variety to non-IPAs as well. It's kind of the problem of the expert and the consumer that so many industries face. You know, think about the main movies that get nominated for Oscars. A lot of them are the kinds of movies that film industry professionals like to see, not necessarily the kinds of movies that the general public wants to see. Expertise and experience within the industry means you appreciate different elements of a product than someone without that expertise and experience. And neither is wrong or right, but they are different. And while a professional might be able to geek out over a creative application of a well-known insider standard, taste these Calypso hops, watch how this shot replicates Carl Dreyer's style, an everyday consumer might just want to kick back with a cold beer that tastes decent and a movie with a fun storyline. But so long as the beer nerds continue to be the ones making the beers, to paraphrase Scott Schreffler, co-founder of Mile Wide Beer Company, the next IPA, the next big trend in beer, is probably going to continue to be just another new IPA. Today, Thursday the 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, so likely having already occurred by the time you listen to this, South Korea will have launched their first ever lunar orbiter. The Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, or KPLO, mission is launching on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida. It's expected to arrive in lunar orbit in mid-December and will then orbit the moon for one year. One of the six payloads on board the spacecraft is a NASA shadow cam, which will be capturing shadowed regions on the moon. It joins several other South Korean instruments, which will help KPLO, also named Denuri, in its search for water ice, uranium, silicon, aluminum, and helium-3 on the moon, as well as creating a topographic map to identify potential lunar landing locations. Like other international space agencies, the Korea Aerospace Research Institute is hoping to land on the surface of the moon within the coming decade. They plan to put a robotic lander on the moon by 2030, according to Space.com. Denuri, by the way, is a portmanteau of the Korean words for moon and enjoy, which I really like as the name for an inaugural lunar mission. The launch will be live-streamed by SpaceX on their YouTube channel starting a few minutes before the expected launch time of 7.08 p.m. Eastern, and more than likely available to view on demand afterwards. Link is in the show notes. All right, well, that's going to be it for me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 